This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Factually. My name's Adam Conover, and let's talk about language. You know, the linguistic invention I'm using to communicate with you right now through this microphone. Uh, Look, so uh, it goes without saying that words have meaning, right? But they don't always just have the obvious meaning you see in the dictionary. The words we choose and how we use them spray a thick fog of association and connotation around us, and they can reveal hints about our age, our social class, or even our ethnicity. I like to think of the words I use, for instance, as the clothing that I wear. Depending on my word choices, I could be wearing the linguistic equivalent of ripped jeans and a t-shirt, or a tailored three-piece suit, or jinkos and a fedora. Pretty sure the word milady conjures the image of that last one into your mind, doesn't it? The point is, there is no neutral use of language. When we speak, or when we write, or when we text, our words are telling stories about us, regardless of the specific thing we're trying to say. Here's an example from my own life. I am, in general, a really ingratiating emailer. Maybe you're like this. All of my emails end with, either way is fine, whatever you want to do is good with me, right? I don't want anyone to be mad at me. So I tend to make sure my emails come across really nice and light, right? But that's a problem for me because in the last few years, I've been in charge of making a few television shows. And as uncomfortable as I am with the idea, I'm a boss. And in a professional setting where I'm going back and forth with some powerful network executives, for instance, being so ingratiating is kind of a bad look. So last year... I made a change. I decided that from now on, I was going to stop using exclamation points in my emails. Cut them out completely. We're going with periods. No more exclamations. And it had an instant effect. The effect was it immediately made me feel more confident, adult, and mature when I wrote those emails. You know, saying, sure, will do, with an exclamation point sounds chipper. But adding a period makes it sound matter-of-fact. It becomes, sure, will do. Getting rid of all those exclamation points made me feel less needy. No longer was I trying to cheer somebody up with my email or make them feel extra positive about, I don't know, my email about script notes or whatever. I still use exclamation points with my friends or my parents, people who I want to communicate friendliness and enthusiasm to. But in work emails, I find if I get rid of them, I can adopt a certain steeliness, which is useful if you need to get things done, which I often do. Losing the exclamation point has given me the same feeling of confidence I get when I dress up a little bit, right? I'm trading my linguistic beat-up hoodie for a business suit when the occasion requires. The point is, the language we use can change the way we feel about ourselves and how people feel about us. And in fact, language is so powerful that it can even change how we perceive the world. One study found that perceptions of color differed based on people's native language and the way those languages categorized color. 
Another study found that people's perceptions of time could actually change depending on the metaphor their native language used for time. Language shapes us in profound ways, and it is so complex that we are constantly discovering more about this thing that we use all the time. It's just like the ocean, something that we're still plumbing the depths of, except that it's in our own minds and our culture. Take the internet. It's transformed the way that we use language, and it's created totally new contexts and forms for us to communicate in. With the internet, we're communicating more than ever, with new rules and new meanings, and we are still discovering how those new changes are affecting the way we speak, the way we think, and the way we conceive of ourselves. And to talk to us about that today, we have the ideal guest. Gretchen McCulloch is a linguist, podcaster, and writer who's the author of the book Because Internet, Under Understanding the new rules of language. This conversation was so fascinating. I had an incredible time talking to her. I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get right to the interview with Gretchen McCulloch. Let's just start the conversation here because I want to make this point. Uh, <laughs> I can't stand looking at myself while I'm on a video conference and I can't believe that the default is to show you your own video because it makes you completely, completely neurotic in a conversation. Because when are you talking to other people in real life and also constantly looking at yourself. It makes you. It's like being at a bar with a mirror. Like sometimes you go to a bar and they have yeah. a mirror. Back when we went to bars uh, and they have a mirror and you're like, oh no, I'm just sitting here just like looking at my teeth. Like, do I have anything in my teeth the entire time? And yeah. not doing that. Sometimes what I do or what I suggest that people do is get like a sticky note and just manually attach it to your screen to block uh, your own video of yourself. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because if I don't do that, I'm just constantly looking at myself, like getting what's my best angle? Like, you know, am I are, are my glasses on right? Like da da da. It's it's bizarre. It changes our behavior, and it's just one example of the many ways in which the internet changes our behavior. This this segue is sounding too practiced, but I. <laughs> But you are you're a linguist and you research how uh, the Internet changes our language. Yes. Um, uh, how how has it? What, give me some examples of that. How has it done so? Well, one of the things that I'm really excited about that, uh, you know, especially before the you know tremendous rise in video content, which I think if they if they ever give me a second edition and I get to add another chapter, I might I might have <laughs> video. But the, the, the paperback with a bonus chapter. <laughs> We didn't do that because the paperback came out quite quickly. But if you know, if we do a revised edition in five or ten years, <laughs> I've always because the problem is, is like there. I, I'm sure there are several people who are currently writing like their PhD dissertations about TikTok or video streaming and video conferencing. Yeah, they haven't been written yet, so I have a strong interest in video, but not a lot to cite. Um, and so the thing where I do have stuff to cite is on how we communicate with each other in text and how mm -hmm. we use informal text and informal writing in the online context in a way that's sort of, you know, different and exciting and interesting compared to the sort of traditional, like, oh, you know, you, you learn how to read, you read books, other people have edited these books, and it's a very sort of formal context. So how we write now is a big question that I'm trying to figure out an answer to in Because Internet, because it's you know, we're, we're doing a lot more writing than we used to do as a society. And we don't yeah. even think about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and it strikes me that we're talking about language and linguistics here, but like, 
I feel like there's an easy way to pigeonhole that and say, oh, that's just like, oh, what kind of grammar do people use, et cetera? And that's fun to learn about, too. But what we're really talking about is the Internet fundamentally changing the way we communicate and therefore the way we behave. It's like, you know, when the when the printing press was invented, once people began to be able to, you know, write these long form works, people started to spread ideas in a different way. It started to think in a different way, started to act in a different way. Like it changed the new communications technology changed not just our language, but the shape of human society because of how the language changed. And so it, to me, it's like it's, this is a very big, fascinating conversation and topic. It is a big conversation. And what's interesting about looking at Internet communication in terms of informal writing is that you can also find pre-Internet precursors to it. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that I find really fascinating um, is looking at so things like postcards. Uh, I looked at a bunch of archival postcards when I was writing Because Internet. And what's really fascinating is if you take them and you you type them up, they look like texts from your grandma. <laughs> like, got, like, like what do they say? They've got like the dot, dot, dots between the sentences mm. or, or like all of these hyphens or like, you know, dear, you know, dear so-and-so, like, hope you're having fun, dot, dot, dot. Uh, you know, we're, we're at this place, dot, 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 you know, <laughs> love so-and-so, XO. And sometimes they have little doodles in the corners, which you could think of as sort of precursors to emoji because people did draw on things. Yeah. So strange. They have little happy faces or hearts or these kinds of things. Um, the XX that's very common in British text messages, a lot of British people end their text messages with an X. Um, is also there in the postcards uh, and wow. it's I, I like this is this is a thing that people keep cornering me over is why do these older people in my life my parents my grandparents my boss my you know why do people use this dot 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 and you can find precursors of it in postcards so wow. what this generation is actually doing is importing norms from a different medium to something that's kind of similar cool but in a in a digital form yeah like they're not just sort of because this is a big question for me is right so how how is it that a bunch of people's parents and grandparents and so on who don't actually use the internet that much how is it that they're all doing the dot 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 thing they're not talking to each other like they're not getting it from each other online because most of them are communicating with like their younger relatives yeah getting this dot 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 uh, and it seems like one of the answers is it's because it was this thing offline that they're just importing wow. into a new communicative context. Wow. But but there's a there's a mismatch there. Right. Because to me, when I see a dot, 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 it means something very different than maybe when they write a dot, dot, dot. Like when I see a dot, 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 that means like trailing off like a lot, a lack of interest or boredom or or maybe maybe you died halfway through the sentence and you because you fell down a bottomless pit you went, ah, or something like that. And, or, and so it's very rude and weird to write or kind of a, a something left unsaid. Like if you mm -hmm. say like, yes, dot, dot, yeah, dot, 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 that's, I'm indicating that I'm, I'm leaving some sort of reservation here. I'm leaving some sort of, I have yes. some reservations that I'm not expressing them. Yeah, I'll see you there at three, dot, dot, dot. It's like, uh, will you really? Or are you going to do something to me horrible when you get there? What is with the dot, dot, dot? Ominous. Do you want to meet up tomorrow when you're like, I could, dot, dot, dot. You're really trying to say, actually, I'd rather not. Right. Um, and where that comes from. So. There's a, a linguistic, uh, you know, principle of analyzing not just what people say, but also what they could have said in that context and what they chose not to. 
Mm. Um, and looking at sort of what the what the possible alternatives for what someone could have said uh, and what they what they chose not to say in a particular context. And in this case, what's relevant is our idea of defaults and our idea of what's the sort of default break between a message. And for younger people who have been sort of, you know, acculturated online, the default break between a message is a new line or a new message. So you might send several, several texts in a row and each of those message breaks is a, is a new message or you might have some line breaks and that's the sort of default spacer uh, mm. if you're of an internet native generation because line breaks are really cheap on a screen. Mm -hmm. And new messages are really cheap in, in text terms. This yeah. wasn't true in paper right? You can't just put a dozen line breaks in a postcard because you'll <laughs> run out of postcard. Yeah. Um, or if you're leaving someone a note on like a post-it note or like a note on, you know, note by the kitchen table or like note on like a, remember when people used to leave like uh, notes by the telephone when like so-and-so called, they want you to call them back. Yeah. We <laughs> had a little, we, we had a little special uh, chef this is like a chef. Uh, I, I, it's weird that I described it as a chef. It was like a little notice board in the shape of a chef, and it had a roll of receipt paper on it so you could leave yeah, an yeah, infinite yeah. note on it. And I, I'm only remembering this because my mom just sent it to me, sent a photo, and was like, I'm going to throw this out. And I was like, uh, I remember it, so don't. No, never mind. Throw it away. We don't need this anymore. It was just like it's a relic from the past right. of this, this specific thing to write notes down by the telephone. And so there's there's two things there. One is that, you know, people used to write notes on on pieces of scrap piece of paper, little piece of paper that were supposed to specifically like narrow or smaller. Um, and line breaks weren't free in the same sort of way. Yeah. Line breaks were expensive. And so instead of leaving a line break, um, in order to indicate a sort of casual break between thoughts where you don't necessarily want to commit to, is this a full sentence? I'm going to put a period there. I'm going to put a comma there. Um, people would put either a dash or dot, 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 because those yeah. are punctuation that kind of split the difference between is this a full sentence or not? They can, they can be used for both types. You see this in poetry, like Emily Dickinson does this in her poetry. She has dashes all over the place. Mm. Um, you see this in these postcards. There was a, some old recipe cards that I found that had like dot, dot, dot between each of the steps of the recipe. And it's a way of sort of indicating a casual break between thoughts, exactly the way that you or I might use a line break. Um, but in, uh, in a more sort of, yeah, in more sort of casual way. Um, and that's what this older generation is trying to do when they're putting a dash or a dot, dot, dot. And the thing is, is that for this younger generation that's using uh, line breaks or message breaks as their sort of default separator, that means that the dash and the dot, dot, dot have the potential to take on other types of meaning. Mm. And so you start looking around and being like, well, what else could, what could someone mean with a dot, dot, dot? Because it can't mean it's a default message break because we already have one of those. What yeah. else could it mean? And then you start thinking, oh, maybe it's trailing off or maybe it's something left unsaid or it's sort of a pregnant pause or any of these sorts of things. You start inferring uh, other type of stuff from it. And because you talk to people who use dot, dot, dot by default and they're shocked and horrified this is what they could be expressing, right? Because <laughs> for them, yeah. it's like, this is just my default space. It's like if somebody told you every time you send, like, enter on a new line, you're sending this message you never realized. You're like, oh, my God, no, I just, it's just a new message. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> it's just what happens when two, but either of these norms are totally fine by themselves. It's just yeah. what happens when they start, like, running into each other as this sort of norm train wreck. 
Is there something also with older folks? And I'm not trying to harp on older folks here. I'm, I'm many older folks listen to this podcast. I love you, older folks. Um, mom, if you're listening, I love you. But I am going to call you out right now because do they just maybe also not pay as much attention to how their language works? Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like I am on text all day and I'm sort of constantly calibrating for the person I'm talking to. But my mom will just text me. She'll text me, Adam, all on one line. Call me. All on one line. And that's such a hot, that's like a, that's like a, yeah, it's like a red alarm. It's like the alarm went off in the submarine. Your mom is dying or she's mad at you. And and I'm like, mom, what? And she's like, oh, I just wanted to ask you if I should put this chef notepad on eBay. (laughs) Like, all right. Well, that was such an extreme use of that. Is is there that kind of mismatch as well? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate this because I think to some extent, it's it's very easy to look at another group of people and say, you know, they must not be thinking about them, what they're doing because they're not doing what I'm doing. And if yeah. I were thinking about it, I wouldn't be doing that. And you get that reductivist discourse a lot when, it, when we're talking about you know younger people, like, do the youth just not know what they're doing? And so mm. I'm hesitant to say, well, the olds, they don't know what they're doing. In the same right. way, I'm hesitant to say, well, the youth, they don't know what they're doing. Because it's not like, oh, I have the monopoly on being right and everyone else is just not thinking. That's, uh, you know, that seems like a very sort of non, uh, non-charitable attitude to have towards everybody who's not like, like what's Fair up. enough. Um, what I will say is that there are older people who have, who have told me this, that they think that text is sort of fundamentally incapable of conveying these sorts of subtleties, or at least that if it... If it does, that's a thing that like professional writers do. And that if you as an ordinary person want to convey emotional subtlety, that's why you would pick up the phone. Uh, and so this idea that, that voice has this sort of advantage over text and being able to communicate emotional subtlety and that you don't need to think that hard about how you're doing t- communicating in text because uh, it's, you know, text just isn't capable of that meaning. And of course, and I think to people who, who do think that text is fundamentally capable of it, uh, they're, they're, that means that if you're not thinking about it, you're still getting off messages. Um, yeah. I don't think it's strictly speaking an age split. I think it's age combined with how long you've been on the internet. Because there are people who are now what you would call older people who have been online since the 80s, maybe even since the 70s, been using computers for a long period of time. And they're like, no, I have the old smileys that we used to use back in the day (laughs) on like this system. Like we used to do this on Usenet. We used to do this on (laughs) wherever. And people who've been online for a long time definitely think that text is capable of having this type of subtlety. But people who have are a bit older and also weren't early adopters at the time, back in mm-hmm. the day when one could be an early adopter, whereas these days everyone just kind of gets things at the same time. Um, they, it's not just a question of, of age. It's a question of having defined yourself as a non-technological person for so long. That yeah. you, so if you, to speak like a particular group of people or to talk like a particular group of people, to want to adopt the characteristics of a group of people it means that you have some sort of interest or respect or affection or you know positive sentiment towards that group of people. And so if you don't have a positive sentiment towards being online and communicating with technology, you also don't have you don't think of yourself as a tech person even though you've now been using you know computers yeah. and so on for maybe a decade or so at this point or more at this point. But you still think of yourself as not really a tech person, which means you don't really feel like 
tech-ish features of language are yours to use. But you're still using them. Like, like the way that you put <clears throat> something you said just a minute ago uh, reminded me of a conversation I had like a decade ago with a college friend. Um, we were talking about clothes and he said, this this friend is like, you know, uh, a t-shirt and cargo shorts guy, you know, uh, and he was mm. saying, Adam, like, I don't care what other people wear and I don't care what, what I wear. When I'm when I'm dressing, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm not trying to communicate anything about myself. I just don't care. And I was like, well, hold on a second. That you are communicating something. You're communicating that you don't care. I can tell that from the way that you dress. Like you can't opt out of the system of clothes saying something about you, even if you don't understand it. <laughs> the very least you're gonna under you're gonna communicate is I don't understand how my what my clothes are communicating because right. people are gonna be like, oh, this person is is they're dressed in a confusing way, and I feel like your use of language would be similar. Right. And I think, you know, you do have people who are saying, I'm I'm not going to try to adopt, you know, the trendy thing that the youths are doing. I'm going to communicate like I swallowed the AP style book. And you're commu still communicating something about yourself that way. Yeah. You know? Or you're going to communicate like, you know, in this, this style of using dot, dot, dot. I'm going to communicate like I'm not a tech person. Or I'm going to communicate like I'm, you know, I refuse to use emoji because I'm too, I think I am too good for them or something. You're still saying something about yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's been an interesting, <laughs> the people that are like the most discomfited by Because Internet, which I think is great because they get to be very comfortable <laughs> for all of the other language books. <laughs> uh, the most discomfited are the ones who said, but I communicate, you know, like I've swallowed the AP style book. I communicate like I'm uh, in this very formal style. And I have this whole time. And you're telling me that this thing that I thought was neutral isn't actually neutral. And what it tell says about me is that I'm uptight. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. If you uh, refuse to make typos in an internet context because you can't possibly let anything go out of your, you know, go out of your hands without, uh, you know, double and triple checking it, you are definitely communicating that you are uptight and you are maybe a little bit judgy of other people. And if people don't like that, that's kind of a reasonable response on their part. I'm yeah. not saying you can't do it. It completely depends on the context. Like I. Uh... Uh, was asked to be more involved in a nonprofit that I'm was semi involved with, and they asked me to to join their fundraising board and stuff like that, right? And mm -hmm. one of the things they said to me was like, Adam, we we thought you'd be good at this because your emails are really good. When you reply mm -hmm. to us, they're like really well written, and and you know I, I've like adopted like a very professional email style with them, right? But then on my group DM about like basketball <laughs> it would be very inappropriate to write that way they'd be like what is this weirdo doing in you know our basketball dm right and i think that you know this is something that we do in speech all the time is we communicate in different ways with different types of people right this is the fabled code switching i've heard of this this is the fabled code switching this is the whole like you know you don't you don't talk to your dog the same way you talk to your boss or at least i, <laughs> I wish so. i did <laughs> Who's a good boss? Yeah, that's that, the other boss. way around. Yeah, I want to talk to my boss the way I talk to my dog. <laughs> who's a good boss? Who's, who's got some work for me to do? Who's got some work? Oh, you want me to do it, don't you? <laughs> you want to go for walkies? <laughs> We're going to have a one-on-one -on -one at the park. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so, you know, we, we talk differently with different people and we don't think there's anything weird about this. You know, we don't think yeah. that there's something, there's something wrong with this, there's something weird about this. Uh, we can talk differently with different people. And I think that's also, that can also be true for writing, especially because we're writing in so many more contexts than 
people might have written 50 years ago, you know, there, there was this sort of postcard genre, but it wasn't as common as the amount of times you can tweet or text somebody. A lot of those would have happened in speech before. So this idea that, you know, oh, we're writing in different ways and you can write differently in emails than you do in like, you know, group chat with your friends or whatever. That's, that's fine. That's, that's great. You don't have to, what I, what I like about when people have uh, read because internet, they're like, oh, I, I was already using internet slang, but I felt bad that I was doing it. And now I feel okay about myself. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I, I like this response. Like, I feel bad about using, about using slang or about, you know, talking differently with different groups of people. It's okay. You're yeah. okay. Now, uh, it's amazing to me how fast language changes over time. Like I was recently, I forget what the context was, but I was noticing how even in like the 80s when people wrote letters to each other, like business correspondence mm -hmm. was so much more formal than today. Like today, business correspondence has like this, you know, it's it, it actually has a little bit of casualness to it a lot of times, like like people emailing each other within a company. Right. Um, but, you know, in the 80s, people were still writing like, you know, uh, Mr. So and so I read your article of June the 28th with great interest <laughs> or like that kind of thing. <laughs> and like nobody nobody writes like that anymore. Um, and it's kind of like everyone wearing so fast. the office or something. <laughs> It feels like it's gone alongside with like, oh, you know, now you have your dark right. wash denim or whatever that you wear to the office or you have your like, you know, your your dress up yoga pants uh, yeah. or like your, you know, your formal T-shirts that you wear to the office. Uh, yeah. That are, you know, if you wear a tie, you're the weird guy at the office. Like I literally remember wearing a, a tie to my job at College Humor one day and feeling so uncomfortable and awkward and like getting made fun of. I was like, what? <laughs> like, why am I doing this? Well, it's but it's still a, a type of uniform and it's still a type of expectation, right? Yes. Because if you address someone, your email to somebody, you know, dear sir, uh, I hope this letter finds you in good health. You know, uh, like I, I read with interest your article of May, I think. You're like, who the heck is this guy? Why is he so formal? Uh, yeah. You know, it's just like wearing a tie becomes a more marked behavior. There's still a sort right. of, you know, there's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of, uh, still an expect a set of expectations just because those expectations have shifted. Yeah, there are, it, it's just a different set of norms. Like something I think about a lot is like, um, I follow a lot of journalists on Twitter um, and journalists are like out of every profession, like the most on Twitter. And there's mm -hmm. a certain sort of accepted use among them of like Twitter language and like joke making that like certainly wouldn't have existed in the eighties. Right. Like you wouldn't have had all these sarcastic journalists <laughs> like well, publicly so writing little snippets it exist in the eighties. Okay. <laughs> Which was something that I was really interested to encounter when I was researching because internet was uh, this genre of Xerox lore and fax lore. Oh, I love, oh, this is so exciting. I don't know what this is, but I'm so excited to hear about it. <laughs> this sounds like this is my shit right here. Right, so you, you may have seen some of these from like maybe your parents or something like that. And this was people would repeatedly photocopy or fax to each other, other offices, things like political cartoons, like jokes, running jokes, uh, various types of just like cartoons in general, and often sort of commentaries on office life. They'd often be like tacked up on top of the, above the photocopier. Mm -hmm. uh, as like, here's this, here's this funny joke. I found this funny cartoon. My friend sent it to me who works at this other office, sent it to me. Now I'm going to photocopy it. I'm going to share it with like a 20 of my buddies. Yeah. Like, here's this, here's this thing that's really funny. Or like, I'm thinking of the kinds of things where like, you know, so-and-so arrives at the, per like a lawyer arrives at the pearly gates and says, right. blah, blah, blah. Like those kind of stock jokes. Street jokes and is what we call them in comedy. Those are memes. 
Those yeah. are photo memes. They yeah. They're memes. I can't believe I never, I literally just smacked myself in the head. I can't believe I never made that connection that memes are street jokes. And they're, because they're templatic, like a meme. Like yeah. you have a Pearly Gates joke or you have a, you know, like a lawyer and a doctor and a whatever walked into a bar joke. Like you have a walked into a bar joke, you have the professions joke. You have, you know, some that are not, you know, particularly sensitive, you know, blonde jokes and all these sorts of like, you know, racial stereotype jokes, which are terrible. They're still templates though. And it's not that memes don't also sometimes do that. Yeah. It's really funny. I remember talking to uh, my girlfriend Lisa a while ago because I was I was frustrated. But I was like, man, Twitter sucks. It's just people repeating the same template jokes over and over again. Um, uh, you know, uh, that ain't if it chief just like that over and over again. Um, and then she was like, yeah, except the cool thing is the best people make up a new one and then everyone mm. else copies it. And that's like sort of the being like the, the fashion influence, not influencer. That's being like a being of the fashion designer of sentences, <laughs> right? Well, Where you well, come up with a new trend. And, and people were repeating templatic jokes before we called them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, you, yes, you, maybe you make a new, and a lot of people like they'd retell, you know, my, my grandfather always used to have one of those like page a day joke calendars mm-hmm. Remember those, the page a day calendars. Yeah. Um, and th- they would have these like jokes that were like kind of original, but kind of not. And just like it, mostly extremely plagiarized from who knows where. Cause like you can't right. copyright a joke. Um, and he'd like save the best ones and like t- share them with us when we would visit him. <laughs> and this feels like very, this feels like having, you know, having a Tumblr in the early 2010s where you're like, I've got to yeah. reward all my best memes so that yeah. people can see them and appreciate them. Well, and that's exactly the same behavior before social media in like 2005, I was more online than most of my friends. And I had a folder on my hard drive where I saved all my favorite meme images and videos. And when friends would come to my dorm room, I would show them like on a slideshow of (laughs) memes that I had collected from parts of the internet they didn't know about. And then like that, of course, just, just like, you know, that was completely obviated by Reddit and everything else. There's like no reason to do this anymore. Or you have like these chain email forwards. Yeah. Like, you remember, you know, forwarding people emails like here, you know, here's a bunch of jokes about like cute things that like funny things that kids have said or something like that. Yeah. Like, here's this thing. I remember, you know, there was the dancing baby one, the dancing baby gif, or like there was like a penguin that pushed another penguin into a water, into the water gif. Um, and people would email them. And they yeah. like, you know, so-and-so would be like your friend who always found the funny emails and like sent you them. And then so-and-so would be your friend who didn't send you very good funny emails and would send you them <laughs> anyway. Um, like, but this was a kind of social currency of like, oh yeah, we're going to forward these around. One of them that I encountered, you know, in back when email forwards were, were cool, like late 90s, early 2000s, I think this is... Uh, <laughs> was so it's this one that's like in mock german and it's about a computer and it's it's called blinken lights and it's like you know mm. it, this is sort of very bad fake german of like you must not touch the blinken lights don't this is fancy machine don't don't touch it but it's in it's in bad german uh like clearly designed to be legible for english speakers um and when i was writing because internet i actually was like wait a second i wonder where this came from how how old can we trace it back um and this has been traced back to world war ii wow it's, it's not, been passing around and then yeah. eventually made the jump. And then eventually somebody typed it up or probably possibly several people typed it up. 
Um, this, it traces back to this, there was a sort of mock German doggerel style that hung in allied machine shops Yeah, um, in World War II, where like, of course they're mocking the Germans because like they have this, you know, obviously enemy relationship with them. Um, and you know, like blinking lights and fancy machinery doesn't have to just be the computer. That can be like earlier kinds of fancy machinery as well, whether it's a telegraph or something. Uh, and so there's this sort of connection. Yeah. Of uh, one of the early, one of the examples that gets cited a lot cited a lot in the meme literature because like of course there's a meme literature. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah this is every every cool online grad student's uh, thesis right now is on meme literature. Is on, it's memes. on meme literature. Uh, so one of the examples that gets cited a lot in the meme literature is Kilroy was here, mm-hmm, which was yeah. like a, a handwritten sort of chalk meme. Uh, that people would, you know, people would draw this this face with the with the nose peeking over the wall uh, and write Kilroy was here. And that was like the thing that you did, kind of like now, if someone, if you see the number like 69, you say nice and you just say that, you yeah. know, people just would just write the Kilroy was here thing like, oh, there's a wall. I'm going to write that on it. Um, and, uh, but it, I, I think this, the, the rate of change of memes in this er- or jokes in this early sort of proto space is slower because the rate of communication itself is slower. Yeah. Like on Twitter, you can have a meme that becomes a meme for like one day. Um, like I think we're recording this on the same week as the one year anniversary of the, you know, 30 to 50 feral hogs meme. Which <laughs> right. really took over Twitter for one day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. And then people, um, and don't even try to say it the next day. People will no. be like, what the fuck are you doing bringing around the feral hogs to what? my timeline <laughs> on Friday? Fuck you. That was yesterday, <laughs> idiot. That was yesterday's <laughs> meme. Or sometimes you show up. Like, I remember, uh, I remember, this is a number of years ago, when, you remember when the dress, you know, took over, took oh, over yeah. for a couple of days? Everyone, oh, yeah. everyone remembers that. That Loved day, I had, I had happened to be taking a nap uh, and I woke up <laughs> <laughs> and in the, the previous like two hours or whatever, I went back online the previous like two hours. It, suddenly everything was about this dress. And I was just so confused. <laughs> it was so intense. I was hosting a live show, live comedy show that day. And me and my co-host, Emily Heller, uh, put up a... We were, we were like, okay, let's talk about the dress in the show. And we're like, so everyone, we want to talk about this. And then we put up a screenshot of the dress and the whole audience started screaming at once. They all went, <laughs> ah, blue, gold. <laughs> just, it was so funny. Opinions about it. And it would have happened the next day. The next yeah. day we would have been bored of it. Yeah. Uh, but you, I don't think you can get this kind of speed with the killer I was here meme. Right. Or even speed with, like, you want to say, like, the early lolcat memes. Like, when you go back and look at the early lolcat memes, there are, like, a handful of them that are your canonical lolcat memes. And they're the same one everyone knows. Everyone knows I can has cheeseburger. Everyone knows I made you a cookie, but I eat it. You know? Um, And they they lasted for years. That's so long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They lasted long enough to be a canon text, and there were so few of them. So few people had, like, graphics editing capability to make new ones that's a really good i never thought about that you're right like law cats lasted for like five years or so and now like if you go to if if you go to like a meme instagram account nothing lasts that long it's just like the internet screaming insanity like constant chaos and change some things do come back when they get mashed up with other things right yeah you know like the 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 nobody meme 
um, the kind of nobody joke template where you have like nobody colon blank and then, you know, I say yes. something that's, you know, nobody asked for. That's been kind of just percolating along kind of under the radar and it gets sort of brought back when something new happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, but it gets kind of brought back and, and remixed with stuff. So some of, sometimes like the, you know, like the faster some, something rises, the faster it descends as well. But sometimes yeah. something kind of simmer away in the background for quite a long time as well. Um, the, uh, but yeah, like it's, it's interesting for me thinking about what, like, because we have even compared to, you know, 10 years ago or 12, like before, if you compare this to before social media enabled things to spread as quickly, you're relying on like, okay, you know, someone has to forward me this email so that I can see it. And then I have to forward it to someone else. Whereas you can, you can disseminate things faster. You have like big, uh, you know, big meme accounts, whether that's on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, like Buzzfeed picks it up or something and that can disseminate it to a much faster audience. Yeah. Um, and make a meme really like take off very quickly and therefore like subside very quickly. Um, the interesting thing I think about memes and like where they're going is the, the, so there's also been a shift in the last five years or so from uh, interior monologue captioning memes to object labeling memes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, this is, these are the terms that well, know your meme uses yeah. for them, and I think they're good. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, Internal monologue. Okay, wait, yeah, break this down for yeah, me, Yeah, let's break this down. So interior monologue captioning memes, a lot of them are animals, but they're not necessarily the, the text on the meme. So if you think of a meme as an image, yeah. uh, which are not all images, but like if we think of a meme as an image for a sec, um, there's the, the text on the meme represents the interior monologue of the character in the meme. Yeah. I can has cheeseburger. That's what the cat is I saying. I can has cheeseburger. That's what the cat is saying. Or the, or the, the, you know, the Shiba Inu is like such something. Wow. Uh, and like, that's implicitly what the dog is saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the same thing, like the entire advice animal genre, that's implicitly what the animal in the advice animal is saying. Um, and then you get this switch, and one of the early well-known memes in, the, in, this, uh, in this switch is the distracted boyfriend meme. Mm-hmm. So the distracted boyfriend is not saying anything. Right. The distracted boyfriend is labeled in a yes. relationship yes. with the girlfriend and the other girl he's looking after. Yes. And so there's this switch from that the, the entities in the image of the meme are t- implicitly talking to the entities being labeled the meme as as a metaphor or an analogy for a different relationship where we have a meme that means a relationship between three things thing a is more interested in thing b when it should be interested in thing c and then you can apply that to any real world situation which is a lot more complex of an idea than just a cat saying i can't has cheeseburger where the joke is cats want cheeseburgers well, it's a, it's a complex idea, but it also relies, it's, it's more versatile, exa- adaptable to uh, different, right. t- different subcultures. Yes. Because there isn't just one meme culture now. Like there may have been, disputably, there may have been at some point one, a single Unitarian meme culture. There isn't now. We so, can say that. Something that we used to do on the College Humor Writers Slack to amuse ourselves was find hyper-specific memes from subcultures that we didn't understand and share them with each other because it would be like, you know, that feeling when you're taking the bar exam in Alabama and you're <laughs> it was like just these really long thing or about like tri- like memes that triathletes would make to each other about their training schedules and share on Facebook accounts and they're always fascinating to look at because you can recognize it as being a meme but you have no idea what the fuck experience it's talking about there I mean there have been linguistic specific niche memes since at least 20 
2012, 2011 was when I started being aware first of linguistic suspicion, like linguistic specific niche memes. Um, But like that was mostly because I knew enough linguists at that point that I was exposed to them. Maybe they were around earlier as well. Like maybe there were linguistics versions of low cuts that I just didn't see. Um, But so, you know, there's, there is, there is a certain amount of niche, niche gym that's been around for a while. Um, But the, uh, oh, so what's interesting about, so the object labeling style starts out as an image meme thing. You have the distracted yeah. boyfriend who gets labeled or you have the like, is this a butterfly or is this a, is this a pigeon when it's actually a butterfly? Right. And that's a relationship of, of three things. It's like a, a person asking and then an entity and then a question that's bad. Um, <laughs> the, but you also get, this is a kind of meme that you see a lot on TikTok these days where you have the, the meme text, the thing that was the picture in an image yeah. meme is the audio track. Yeah. And then the person who's in the picture is often labeling themselves or characterizing themselves as different entities. Yeah. Um, So maybe they're putting on different hats or they're putting on different wigs. They're putting on, you know, fake makeup and various types of things. And they're being, you know, like me and then my chemistry teacher, (laughs) uh, like does this thing to me or whatever. Um, Or they're putting on, like sometimes they're holding up captions like written on paper you know so they'll be like you know study this is a lot of like you can tell when it's like kids studying for like their ap history exam season because <laughs> it'll be like i don't know you know like america the british well like this dude, <laughs> yeah they're making yeah. a meme about what they're learning in school absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> how wholesome is that you know who's um, gonna complain about that it's, it's really wholesome um and uh, or they'll, they'll, so they'll either hold up a piece of paper or they'll write that text on the image itself with like, uh, you know, various Im- video editing tools that you can use. Um, and but the idea that the the common thread that the meme template gets based on is the, this audio file rather than it's this image and then you add more text on top of the image. That's one of the thing, interesting things that I think like, TikTok has done to the meme genre. Okay, uh, th- we got to take a break. Every time I'm about to take a break, you say something fascinating that I have to reply to, and then we go back and forth, and now my producer's going to be mad, or at least ad sales are going to be mad, because we got to take a break and listen to some ads. But we're going to be right back with more Gretchen McCulloch. I have a huge question for you after this. So stick around. We'll be right back with more Gretchen McCulloch. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. 
I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, Gretchen, I have a question that I think about a lot. And and I apologize if this is a little bit like spacey, like, you know, big picture, like we're smoking weed during grad school kind of question. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I think a lot about, you know, there's been so much change in human society, not just society, but like the way humans as a species operate in the last 10,000 years. Right. You know, if mm-hmm. you look at human history, we were you know, basically pretty advanced apes for like millions of years. Right. And then around, you know, uh, well, uh, you know, I'm not a, a historical anthropologist, so it's uh, I don't know the exact date, but, you know, things started accelerating. Right. Like the amount of change that's happened I- in humanity in the last you know, couple thousand years is much greater than was what was happening before. And it looks like that comes along with the development of language, with the development of culture, and that you start having this process of like cultural evolution. Right. That that starts happening in our minds as opposed to just like instead of just genetic changes you have cultural changes happening as well and they start iterating on each other and creating these feedback loops what you're describing where like okay now linguistics are the way we use language is changing faster and faster because of the internet starts to make me think well is that sort of process like is that is there something that's fundamentally speeding up about the way that humanity (laughs) is on earth i told you it was a really (laughs) smoking weed on the porch during grad school question but no there's there's the three different things there <laughs> to unpack. Yeah. Um, one is is that language is is actually very old. Uh, language as a as a human capacity, whether it's spoken language or sign language, is really old. And as far we don't know exactly how old, because unfortunately, like sound waves and hand signs don't leave fossils. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you hadn't noticed, uh, the so we don't know whether it's more like fifty thousand or more like two hundred thousand. That's approximately a, a a date range for how old language is. Writing is much newer. Mm-hmm. Writing is a technology. Right. Language is a human capacity. Writing is a technology. Mm. And it's a technology, like we've never encountered a human society that doesn't have language. Mm. And they're all really complex. You know, there are about 7,000 languages that linguists have uh, cataloged these days. They're all really complex. They're all really interesting. They're all fully fledged languages um, by whatever metric you want to define a language. Um, Writing is different because writing is a technology. And because it's a technology, it can be transmitted, it can be lost, it can be adapted, it can be, it can break. Um, It can be saved. It can be saved and it can be, you know, so, and writing, you can, it's a much easier also to track how writing spreads because of course it makes physical records in at least many cases. If you're writing on wood, uh, it might not last super well uh, because wood rots and so on. If you're writing on stone, it's great. Um, So, uh, so writing is a lot more recent to that. What writing lets you do is it gives you, um, on the one hand, it gives you a more durable way of communicating with the past and with the future. Yeah. 
because communicating with people in the here and now is still you know fairly easy but communicating whether that's with your past self because you're writing yourself a note to remind yourself the next day to do something or they're communicating with like the state state tax collectors to be like yes i've paid my taxes here is the goat that i gave you or whatever um writing gives you this ability to communicate across displacements in time and displacements yeah. in space and that's one of the reasons why in many cases, you know, societies that encounter writing, they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's borrow that for us. But mm -hmm. it sort of spreads gradually in this sort of diffusion sense. And then there are also places where, you know, like the Romans were really keen on writing. Uh, and then, you know, after the Roman Empire collapsed, there was a lot less literacy. There was still some literacy, but there was, there was less literacy uh, overall. The... Um, or, you know, people were learning Latin just to kind of gain access to the writing technology because the writing technology happened primarily in Latin, mm -hmm. um, which you can think of in the modern age as like people learning English to gain access to, you know, communi communications technology. Yeah. Uh, because... Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that was what that was what all the books were written. And that was like what the that was the the medium of the written technology was all in Latin at the time. Right. I mean, why why learn Latin to write Old English? Because there wasn't much there to read in Old English. You want to learn Latin so you can read, uh, you know, Caesar or something. Yeah. Um, which is, or, but yeah, the same thing of like, if you want to, if you want to code these days, a lot of programming languages are based off of English. Yeah. And there's no intrinsic reason why they have to be based off English. Like, you know, if you have a command for bold or italic or something, why that has to be based off English mnemonics. Right. Rather than it could be, it could be based off Russian. It could be based off Japanese. It could be based off any language. There are a few uh, programming languages that are based off other human languages, but this vast majority of them are based off English. And I, I wonder never if that's thought like, of that. Yeah, they're all saying. Dominance. Yeah, they're they're all saying go to line ten. Well, that's very dated code, but yeah, they're saying go to yeah. ten or like if or like then. They're not saying the equivalent world. in. Yeah, they're not saying the equivalent yeah. in Mandarin. Right, and like you know, Mandarin has words for if. I assume the, yeah. you could use that word. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it becomes this sort of prerequisite of like, oh, like it, it's really easy if you're an English speaker to be like, oh, yeah, here's, of course, you're going to have like a body text and a, you know, header text mm -hmm. or something like that. Because these are words you recognize even if they're used in a specialized sort of way. But like, imagine this isn't even a script you're familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and like, you have to learn a new alphabet and then you have to like learn this mnemonic. Uh, I wrote an article about that, about programming languages being based off English for Wired. Uh, and it's like the one that I got the most both positive and negative comments on. Huh. Because uh, I had a lot of people being like, "Yes, finally, thank you, thanks for saying it." You know, this is uh, this is a thing, especially for children learning how to code and something. Uh, and then I also had people being like, "Well, they should just learn English and blah, blah, blah. Uh, very." <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course, those people, those people are just looking for an article to write that in response to learn uh, English. They're just people driving around America looking at people to yell "learn English" at. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's but it's very interesting. But you can. When you make the Latin analogy, because it seems strange to us as English speakers in, you know, the, the 2000s, say, to be like, why was everyone so keen on learning Latin for so long? Uh, and it was because it was this, but it's the same reason that people these days are keen on learning English. Mm -hmm. uh, because it gives you access to this particular type of internationalized global discourse and gives you access to this particular type of technology. It was the learn to code of, yeah. <laughs> of the Middle Ages reason because maybe people should have access to this in their native languages as well but yeah. that was a reason why people people learned were so keen on learning latin for so long um but just to get back to writing writing being a technology yeah so uh 
and I'm I'm not a historian. Uh, this is this is not uh, this is not me being a historian. Um, I one of the hypotheses that I like, and I I got this from the historian Ada Palmer, who's also a sci-fi writer, um, is this idea that as the speed of uh, communication increases, that that's what makes change happen faster or seem to happen faster. So like the faster, you know, if it takes a letter three months to arrive from one corner of the Roman Empire to another, yeah, then the speed of change of things that can change is, is constrained by that three months of like how fast can a person with a horse uh, transmit that right. letter or a person in a boat transmit that letter. Right. Um, and that's assuming they even have a, a letter, they have writing as a technology, which lets them send the exact message the person wanted to. Otherwise, you're sending a messenger and you're telling this messenger, like, memorize the message that I want to send, which yeah. people did. Memorize this message that I want to send. They had memory techniques for a lot of these things. Uh, and then arrive at this place three months later and recite your, the message that I wanted to send them. And then memorize <laughs> the message the other person wants to send and, you know, come back three months later. Um, so you can have change potentially happen faster when people are able to communicate with each other faster. Yeah, you're talking about change in, change in the ways that people are using language or, or changes in how the language develops. Ch ch well, change in anything, but especially the sort of broader reaching societal change. So, oh, okay. you know, like if you want to say changes in fashion, right? So if you want to know, oh, how are the cool people dressing over there? You need to find out how, what they're doing first in order for you to do it. Right. Because if you if you don't know how the cool people are dressing over in, in Paris or whatever, you can't then mimic them. If you only find out how they've been dressing in Paris like three years later, your fashions yeah. are always three years behind so, Paris. So so when you're watching, I just watched a whole lot of uh, Jane Austen movies and they're always going mm -hmm. like, oh, the new fashion in Paris is hats. And they just found out because someone just came from Paris to like the little London country town that they're all living in English country town. Um, and so that means that that sort of like puts a limit on the rate of speed at which fashion changes. But today where we're all doing it on Instagram and right, you're seeing so it instantaneously. Someone in Paris takes a selfie, puts it on Instagram and I'm like, oh, hey, look what they're doing in Paris. Right. So if I wanted yeah. to, I can I can be aware of what people are doing in that sense. And even if you think about meme diffusion, like we were talking about with chain emails, like if the fastest way for me to find out like, hey, there's this cool gif is for like someone who I happen to know personally to email it to me. Yeah. Even if they can email it instantly, the fact that I can choose, oh, here's this here's this funny person who posts a lot of cool gifts. I can go follow them on on social media somewhere. I can find out about the cool gifts at source rather than wait for them to arrive like three email chains later. Uh, even though the technological communication happens instantly, the it still has to go through people somehow. You yeah. Know, how does how does something become viral? It goes through people somehow. But um, so this actually affects like how fast fashion might change, like the faster the communication happens, then fashions themselves might change faster in, in theory. But there are other things that slow things down. Right. So there are also things like fashion, like supply lines and mm -hmm. you know, how fast the fashion industry like plans its seasons in advance. You know, how fast can your manufacturers copy this other thing? Right. You know, how fast can they gear up to make something? You're still going to be looking at months or you know sometimes longer for for how how fast can anything happen it's still constrained by like atoms in the real world the other thing though is that technology because of communications technology and this is true of writing as a technology and also of um the, the internet and like the you know computers and so on is that it can also be a force for conservatism in the other direction because you have the records of what people were doing and if you're the kind of person who doesn't like change, it gives right. you more ammo to say, let's not actually change it. Right? <laughs> so 
you have, for example, like, you know, after, after the Roman Empire falls, um, you have Latin evolve into the modern Romance languages, French and Spanish and Italian and so on, right? And that's happening. That change is happening because change is a constant. There's never a period when there's like, oh, well, there's no change now. <laughs> um, right. Humans Language is always changing. Just like if you're, if you're trying to stop it from changing, it's, you're, you're, it's a fool's errand. Well, it's like, I mean, it's the same thing as anything, right? Like, you can't just stop a river from, like, eroding the banks a little bit. Or, like, you can't right. stop, like, like entropy right. is a force in the universe. You can't stop change from, like, humans grow up. You know, this is just this is a thing that happens. You can't stop your kids from growing up. Um, so, the... So, you can, you can have the ability to look back and say, oh, here's what people were doing back in this generation, I'm going to, I'm going to learn these, I'm going to learn this word that was older. I'm going to keep remembering this word that was older. So on the one hand, you have like Latin splitting off into the Romance languages. Cool. So that's change that was happening organically, especially because they weren't communicating with each other anymore uh, as, as much. And so they were able to develop these more distinct local dialects, Mm -hmm. um, which, but also like they're able to look back at the sort of classical Latin and keep looking back to it and keep drawing things from there and keep borrowing things from there Ah. and try to reverse the course of some of these changes. So some cases people added in silent letters because that letter had been there in Latin. Mm. So like the English word debt, for example, Mm -hmm. came from a French word, which was also debt and it was spelled D E T T E at the time. Mm -hmm. That seems more appropriate. Seems more reasonable, right? Yes. Um, and then some people looked at Latin and they're like, oh, this word originally comes from Latin debitum, where they had pronounced that B. In the internet sense, we can see technology also makes us more conservative because of things like spell check. Mm, yes, spell check. The little I use it. I use it. I keep it off all the time. I don't ever want spell check <laughs> looking at what I'm saying, having a little algorithm looking over my shoulder, like not understanding the things I'm writing. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's useful sometimes. Like I use spell check, especially on your phone. It makes you type fast. You, you can type faster when it's predicting the words. But at the same time, oh yeah, know, yeah. Well, that's autocorrect. That's different. That's, oh, different. that's autocorrect. Oh, okay. I okay. don't well, like the little. Auto- I don't like the little red line. Okay. I, I hate that. But all of these autocorrect, spell check, predictive text, yeah. all of them uh, are training. Like they're helping us write words the way that they've previously been written. Yeah. And sometimes that's like you type a new word, you type some sort of like jocular mm. respelling, and then spell check like thinks that you want to use it all the time. Like my phone now thinks I always want to write actually with a capital A, because I've done that like sarcastic actually good at, you know, turns out sleeping is actually good, like one too many times. And now it's like, are you, would you always like to be sarcastic with your actually? So I'm like, no, 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 not all the time. Um, but the general principle of things. So if you're talking about like the silent B in debt, which like if we had a more decentralized writing system, we could one day stop writing that silent B. There's no reason for it to be there. Mm, yeah. But because our phones are, you know, helping us, uh, quote unquote, helping us, you know, write things in this way that they've previously been written. Uh, it reinforces all of these sort of weird fossilized spellings that, you know, arrived one day and, it makes it actually harder to change things as quickly because you have the phone like helping you be yeah. more conservative with respect to spelling. We have a force sort of pulling us back from the big changes that we might otherwise make or keeping us on the straight and narrow, like sort of keeping things mainstream a little bit. So I'm curious what you think about 
you know, the idea of correcting each other, right? Or, or, or language staying the same. This is, this is, I feel like the first question like linguists get asked a lot of the time is prescriptivism and descriptivism and this sort of debate. Um, I, uh, remember I, I did an interview, uh, with, uh, Ann Curzan, you know, Ann Curzan, oh, yeah, she's um, great. She, she's wonderful. She was on my older podcast, Adam Ruins Everything podcast and on the show. And she used this great example of I've been corrected my whole life for saying, you know, how are you doing? I'm good instead of I'm well. Mm-hmm. And she and you should say I'm well, like my friends in college would say this to me. And she was like, that's wrong because I'm good means something different than I'm well. Right. Like yeah. I'm good means like I'm doing I'm doing good. Like I'm good. Like things are good with me um, as opposed to like I am I'm in good health. You know, It's like it has a different meaning. And so I feel like we often have this rejection. Of, I love that argument, right? Because I'm like, yes, fuck all those people who tell you how to speak, right? Who say that this is how the English language works. We should really just be describing how people use it in practice and allowing it to change because that's natural. Da, 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 right. But is it also the case that these forces keeping us on the straight and narrow um, are helping us communicate by sort of standardizing our language a little bit? Or, or how do you view that as someone who like is, is uh, exploring the wilds of internet language or languages? It's most chaotic. Yeah, well, Anne Curzon, actually, it's funny that you brought her up because she makes this argument in her book, Fixing English, uh, about how she asked a bunch of her colleagues who were, you know, English professors and so on, where do you think Microsoft Word gets the words that are in its spell check? Mm. Like, what, mm-hmm. where, what list does you think it's pulling from? Where did it get its ideas of what is good grammar or bad grammar or what is a word or what isn't a word? And they were like, huh. I've never really thought about that. And, you know, if English professors who question words for a living haven't thought about it, what yeah. else do the rest of us have? Like, where, where are the kinds of things coming from? And so I think, you know, the idea that we should be looking at language how it actually is and not trying to make people conform to some sort of abstract idea of correctness, this is really the least controversial idea in linguistics. Like, I go yeah. out, uh, you know, on, like, radio interviews and be like, wow, what an interesting, bold idea you're advancing. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't think you understand. Like, this is lingual. Well, this is like the well, first lecture of Lingua 101 type content. Yeah, uh, but that's among linguists, not among English mm. teachers, right? right. Who, uh, not among, like, grade school and primary school teachers who are very much, you know, uh, I think a lot of people have had the experience of being hovered over with a ruler while they're writing and saying, no, you wrote wrong, you know? Right. And like, it is definitely still very common in education. And a lot of people internalize that and they internalize that they're somehow, you know, a better person because they're very persnickety about language. And I think that there has been a trend away from that, especially a lot of people saying, look, you know, maybe I'm going to do this one thing in, in essays or on a resume or something, but I'm going to do this other thing with my friends and that's fine. Um, And I think it's, you know, there's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things going on. They're going on there. And I think this idea, like, it's not necessary to correct other people. Like if you go around correcting other people, you know, when they haven't asked for it, that makes you an annoying person. Yeah. Be You're being a bad you- person when you do that because it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised if people don't like you because you're actually just being an asshole. <laughs> um, That's like going up to someone with a clothes metaphor again. It's like going up to someone and saying, your clothes don't match. Like, like, I don't like your shirt. Like who asked you? you know, yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I bring you in as my fashion consultant and I'm like, all right, you know, like tell me what I should be wearing for this fancy event. Like I want your opinion. Then you give my, yeah. my opinion. If I don't ask you what you think of my clothes or even if I like, if I bring a friend to the store or something uh, and I'm like, Hey, you know, what do you think about this shirt? Should I buy it? I've asked you for your opinion, but you don't go up to random people in the street and be like, I hate your shirt. Yeah. Like, and, and as a, and as a corollary to that, some people don't say that to, 
to individuals, but they'll just complain about, oh, I hate when people use the wrong form of your, they say your instead of your, it's like, this what? is really bothering you like all day long. Like, you know what the fuck they meant. That's like having a rant about jeggings. Like, what did jeggings ever do to you? <laughs> right. You don't need to have a rant about jeggings. It's fine. You don't have to wear you can, them. You can what have your opinion, people? but why are you wasting your breath talking about it? Well, I'm like, why? Like, other people want to wear them. Like, it's fine. You don't have to wear them. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the other thing is, is that there's, like, linguists also need to exist as people in the world. So as academics, we can say, hey, we want to analyze everything. Let's just figure out how everything works. But Existing as people in the world, the the kind of ethical standard that I like to think about for me is, am I using this, you know, form of language to try to connect with people, to try to like be friends with people, be kind to people, be polite to people, or am I trying to use this to be in, like sanctimonious and annoying and like yeah. to prove my moral superiority over people? So if you're going around with like a red pen and apostrophe, you're using that because you're trying to prove your superiority over people. But yeah. if you're going around trying to use people's correct pronouns, that's because you're trying to connect with them and be polite to them and be nice to them. That's not yes. a, I'm trying to prove my intellectual superiority. That's, I want to respect people. So, yes. you know, there's a, there's a question of like, you know, why, why are you doing this? Are you doing this, you know, because you're trying to be, a, you know, a decent human to other people? Or are you doing this because you're trying to make yourself feel better and like, you know, put other people down? And so I think right. that saying like, oh, well, this is wrong because we didn't used to do it this way. Like, what has that apostrophe ever done to you? But like, not using slurs sounds like a good <laughs> you know, that, is, that is in some respect also prescriptive, but that's prescriptive in the favor of like being respectful to people, which I think is good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think about crossword puzzles. I really like doing crossword puzzles and mm -hmm. crossword puzzles like rely on a certain shared understanding of how language works of like what words mean what. And like, you know, I, I, like I'll do a crossword puzzle and be like, uh, you know, when I read the clue, it limits the number of answers that could go in because I'm like, no, they wouldn't use that word that way in that clue. So the answer is probably this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need a certain amount of, you know, gu uh, guidelines or, or uh, guardrails on the side of the road in order to make the puzzle possible. But this, at the same time, it's a format that's fundamentally about playing with language, about finding new uses for language. And the best crossword puzzles are the ones that like you know, radically introduce new words and new, uh, you know, new forms of speech and include internet speech and uh, that sort of thing as, as the language is actually spoken. So it, it feels like there's a healthy, like, yes, we, we need a common frame of reference, but then we're using that in order to be expressive and have fun. That's what the common frame of reference is there in the first place for. Well, I think like, if you think about this point of English as a lingua franca, you know, a lot of people learn English as a second language to communicate with, you know, sort of the broader world of English speakers, whether that's first or second language. And yeah. there are ways in which people who are English native speakers are some of the worst at doing this. Because, you know, we talk too quickly and we use too many idioms that are like obscure vocabulary words. And in some cases, it's easier for, for people who both speak English as a second language to communicate with each other than it is when you have uh, a native English speaker going in and being like, oh, yeah, like, here are all these things that you didn't need to know in order to do this sort of level of communication. So, mm. you know, are you actually trying to accomplish communication? Because communication is about meeting somebody where they are. And it's about both yeah. people or everybody involved in the situation trying to find some sort of common ground and not like saying, well, the way I do things is objectively right. And so 
you all need to be doing this. And all of the common ground is my common ground, right? So I think adapting the way we talk to different contexts, you know, there are there are certain idioms, you know, that I know are Canadian that I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to use this with Americans because they're not going to understand. You know, you can have this sort of sense of awareness of like, what am I doing that that might not be understood internationally? Or what am I doing that, you know, I'm deliberately trying to, you know, index a more Canadian identity in this particular context. Yeah. So, but it's, it requires this sort of awareness of other people, but that doesn't mean that, you know, this, the previous thing that we thought of as sort of an unmarked default that, get, that got created by a very particular set of people, right? That didn't just like appear. Right. So where where is that default? Who creates it? And, you know, how can you sort of both validate all of the ways of talking while also trying to have people, you know, somehow meet, meet in the middle or meet in a place where they can understand it? It goes back to this question of like, well, why learn Latin? Because it gives you this access to this. Yeah. This, This goes back to what you were saying about how people respond to your book and they say, oh, I thought I was speaking in the default and you're saying I'm actually communicating in a way that's kind of uptight. Mm -hmm. And I certainly also feel that I speak in the default. And by the way, this is like uh, or that's what I felt throughout most of my life. And this is um, uh, really emblematic of like white culture in America is like the belief that, no, this is the default. What everyone else does is weird. But what you're pointing out is that like, no, these are all just different contexts and different frameworks and they're they're valuable you neutral they're all they all exist and if you are privileging one over the other and saying no this is this one is the neutral and is the right way and everything else is weird you're you're actually making an error because you're going to fail to communicate with people in the proper context I, i think about like what you were saying with with foreign Uh, Sorry, with second language speakers. And I've noticed myself sometimes when I'm speaking to someone with English as a second language, I'll change the way I speak um, Mm -hmm. in in a way that like I'll just use simpler syntax and stuff like that. Um, And that's me. uh, I used to think, uh, yeah, that's that's me like community, like making an effort to communicate more clearly. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, like there's. There are a lot of people are very self-conscious about like if I if I change the way that I talk with other people, does that mean that I'm like parroting them or that does that mean I'm making fun of them? And you don't want to end up at so far that you're that was what I almost said. That was like my concern is like, oh, am I doing a am I doing like a voice here that I shouldn't be doing? But I think, you know, so much of this is so context specific, you know, like linguists like to say that everybody has an accent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not just like, oh, some people, those people have accents and people who talk in the sort of majoritarian way, we don't, quote unquote, don't have accents. Uh, I mean, if nothing else, you have an American accent. If you talk to a British person, they're like, no, you have an American accent. Um, but the, you know, everybody has an accent. Everybody has ways of, of talking that are different. And the question, the, the question is, you know, at a societal level, we've chosen to privilege some accents over others. But that doesn't mean that there's an intrinsic feature. Like nobody had a beauty contest for accents of English uh, and yeah. tried to to find them. There's a really interesting study actually um, where they looked at they, they had a variety of accents in Britain because of course there are lots of British accents. Yeah, um, and they have different uh, people in in people in Britain believe different things about them. You have, they have different sorts of sort of associations, but those associations don't always cross the Atlantic. So they had a bunch of British accents. They played them for Americans. Um, mm. And they asked the Americans to rate them on various qualities of, you know, pleasantness and uh, attractiveness and, you know, how, how, how cool of an accent this is. And the Americans found the Birmingham accent, like, the best. They rated mm. that one the most highly. And the, the interesting thing about this is if you say this to a British person, they're like, what? Because in Britain, <laughs> the Birmingham accent is specifically stigmatized. 
Yeah. But the Americans who came in without knowledge of the particular social features that were assigned to this accent were like, no, this accent's great. It's lovely. (laughs) I really like this one. This is the best of the British accents. So none of these features are intrinsic to like the consonants and the vowels and the intonation and all of these like, like granular linguistic features that you're producing. They're all imposed from society. You know, like jeggings are morally neutral. Yeah. Like it's just who you associate the kinds of person who wears jeggings or who wears, you know, sunglasses or who wears any of these types, you know, cool jeans or non-cool jeans or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you I don't mean, hate jeggings. You hate young women. You That's hate, basically what it comes down jeggings, to. You hate young women. You don't hate vocal fry. You also hate young women. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody hates young women and it's very uh, there. Everyone's making that very clear. <laughs> yeah. um, like the, and you know, and it's, it's, it's this like weird, funny coincidence, except it's like completely not a coincidence that like all of the language versions that people, that people dislike also happen to align with all of the various groups of society that people dislike. Yes. You know, like people dislike African-Americans. People are racist. Like, oh no, now they're going to stigmatize African-American English. So it's not a coincidence. Yeah. So it's like, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like entirely the, yeah, the, it's the social value of the way of speaking that, that people are putting onto the way of speaking rather than it, some, some high-minded concern about linguistics or something like that. No, because like, like, like this will tell you, there's nothing there. Yeah. You know, like there's here are all these interesting features and like, you know, every every dialect, every language, every accent has its own interesting features. Um, and you can find somebody who's studying and be like, oh, yeah, here's this interesting thing that this one does. Uh, none of them are wrong. And again, I I, I want to couple that with I think it's important to respect people. You know, if they want to be called something, call them that. If they don't want to be called something, don't call them that. But that's yeah. different from like, you know, this this version of language is just objectively better or it's good English or it's standard. You know, none of. None of that is even linguistically defined because it's not mm-hmm. real. How uh, to, to bring us in for a landing here? I could talk to you for a thousand years. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, just let me say, I have a podcast, so you can listen to me anytime you want. <laughs> oh, please do, and it is called Lingthusiasm. Yes, it's. Called I'm going to start listening to this fucking podcast. I mean, I, <laughs> I I'm sorry that I haven't listened to it so far. This is wonderful <laughs> stuff. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> well, so let me let me ask this: the the sort of linguistics that I never studied any linguistics, but my peripheral understanding of it from other things that I studied was a lot of like, you know, what is the structure of language in the human mind, and what are the sort of rules that we can intuit about where language comes from, and and these sort of much more, you know, psychological, uh, you know, explorations of language, and what you're describing, uh, a lot of the work that you've been describing is very almost sociology. You're talking about the way that people communicate on the internet like what they want to do you know their choice that they make in language like the way that they use the line breaks for instance is like it sounds like half sociology to me and so i wonder there are (laughs) fortunately for you there is both psycholinguistics and sociolinguistics all right okay so thank you for schooling me on a very elementary part of the field (laughs) uh so i was just asking about the difference between those two extremely broad subfields of linguistics um exactly but it's linguistics is really exciting for me because it kind of touches everything you know there are so many subfields and there are so many different things that it can talk to and so like it's it's cool that there is both a psycholinguistics that looks at the sort of brain capacity for language and also the sociolinguistics that looks at the you know 
society level, uh, and also things that look at, you know, the sounds of language or the, the structure of, you know, sentences and this, these types of things. Like, there are all these different things. And I think it's, it's fun to take this sort of broad tent approach to linguistics and say, how can we understand how language works, whether that's in internet linguistics or whether that's uh, in some of these more cognitive areas, which are also interesting. Yeah. So what I what I was wondering is the you know, I feel like your your part of the field must be incredibly exciting because there's this incredible volume now of written speech and recorded speech that's like orders of magnitude greater than anything that would have existed, you know, a couple decades ago. And uh, you're able to observe it. Um, I'm wondering if that's changing linguistics as a field at all or, or if it's shedding any light on older debates. Right about, you know, that in psycholinguistics, a word I just learned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is just sort of the general, you know, uh, both like there's there's so much language that exists in a sort of searchable form now, which didn't Mm -hmm. exist previously. Um, And so you're able to do richer what they call corpus linguistics, where you look at large corpora of data and you can find out all sorts of interesting things from from corpus linguistics. Um, And... uh, you know, looking at things like, okay, how can we do better computer models of language? So you have computational linguistics. Uh, and how can we find better computer models of language, which might tell us something about what is needed for humans in terms of coming up with, with language? Or how can we, you know, train your phone to talk back to you more uh, and thereby maybe find out some things about the structure of language itself? So I think a lot of areas of linguistics are being touched by by technology in some sense. And some of that is like, specifically how we talk online, which is the kind of bit that I'm interested in. But there's also the sort of like, well, you know, can we get computers to do some stuff for us, you know, or, uh, and, or can we get computers to, you know, when it comes to trying to make uh, resources available in under, underrepresented languages. So, you know, some languages don't even have a dictionary, not even like, we, you know, English has many dictionaries. We have Oxford and Merriam-Webster and these types of things. Some languages haven't had a dictionary made for them at all. And so wow, using yeah. technology to even make a dictionary or to make audio recordings in, in different languages and stuff like that. Like all, all areas of linguistics end up getting touched by, you know, increased advances in audio processing. There's a whole area of linguistics um, called gesture studies, which looks at how mm. we gesture, obviously. Oh, and, <laughs> cool. Uh, <laughs> we have a whole episode of Lingthusiasm about, we have several episodes of Lingthusiasm about gesture because my co-host is a gesture linguist. Uh, and uh, including a video one where you can actually see the gestures. And um, we, because one of the analogies that I like to make is that people are using gestures in a similar way to how we're using emoji in terms of how they combine mm. with the words that you're saying. Um, and the neat thing about gesture studies, which has had a tremendous increase in how much it's been studied in the past, you know, couple, you know, probably five or so decades. And you look at that and you think, ah, that's when video recording came in because it became so much easier to record gestures and pause them and play them back and really do this sort of fine-grained granular analysis once we had even things like VHS tape. So you had some sort of videotape to do that. And of course, it's easier to do that now. Um, I know uh, some sign language linguists that are working with YouTube videos of people signing because you Mm -hmm. have, you know, you have access to that kind of data as a as a corpus as well. So the internet is transforming various areas of linguistics, partly because it's this explosion of sort of language data and how we can process it and what we can do with it, which touches on various aspects of how we do language. Yeah. I mean, even like, 
you know, AI text generation, right? Like GPT three, the, yeah. the, the, what it is outputting now. I, I just saw, I saw a headline, I didn't read the article, but that, that a GPT three generated piece of text made it to the top of hacker news, which is like a Reddit type, uh, you know, site, like fooled the user base of <laughs> that site into like upvoting this piece of AI generated text. And, and just that is like, wow, what a door to open to like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Well, and, and in some respects, you know, that's this is where I think knowledge of linguistics is also really useful because, you know, like thinking about things like the Turing test, like the Turing test for, you know, have you have you created a machine that can, you know, fool somebody on the other end of the chatbot to thinking that there's actually a human at the other end. Yeah. And that's a linguistic test, right? That's a yeah. test of language. You know, it's a test also of kind of knowledge of the world. And, you know, you have to say things that don't totally not make sense. But it is ultimately sort of a linguistic test and the idea of like do we want if we want our phones to talk back to us or to communicate us with natural language or if you want something like gpt2 to generate the sort of language it's interesting to have this understanding of language from a linguist perspective of like what's what's been going on there we also did an interview on linkthusiasm with janelle shane who does uh these really fun uh weird robot uh, like um, ai experiments so she tries to like get robots to generate like ice cream flavors and stuff like this and they're all like really weird and funny the sort of figure out the uh, problems with AI. So we were able to do a uh, neural network generated episode of the podcast where we fed in the transcripts of all of our previous episodes. Whoa. And then we had it spit out like dialogues between me and my co-host and being like, here's what's going on. And then we like read out the best dialogues for like, what has the, what has the machine generated? And the thing is, is like if that we were using GPT-2 because GPT-3 didn't exist yet. And the thing is, is like GPT-2 was able to figure some stuff out. Like it was able to figure out that like my co-host and I take turns talking. Um, it was able to figure out the sort of general tone of the podcast, which is very enthusiastic and like, you know, positive. And like it, it began a lot of our sentences like, yeah, and, which mm -hmm. I guess is something that we do. Um, it's linguistics was very, very bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really worried about my job being taken by a robot anytime soon because it would like... Well some words about linguistics but they were very false but well G let me just say gpt3 is like a huge advancement over gpt2 in terms of like uh, how how what it spits out but the other thing that like always is underrated i think about those uh language generation tools all the stuff we trained an ai to write a seinfeld episode yada yada kind of thing all of those sorts of things are they had an AI spit out a bunch of text and then humans selected the best text and combined right. it in every single right. case. It's not yeah. the raw output. It's someone who's basically doing magnetic poetry and then saying, look at the poem my fridge wrote. <laughs> right? right. But in reality, right. no, you wrote the poem. You used a tool to write something. And then the comedy of it is us imagining that a computer did it all by itself. But in reality, you selected the funniest bits, um, exactly. which is as a comedy writer always bothered me that people are acting like humans aren't creating this comedy yeah and like we performed the the best bits and then we also uh released a document that's just like a hundred pages of all of the stuff that it generated so you can mm -hmm. see how weird the raw output is yeah and even that is somewhat curated but it's you can see how weird that is it's kind of like saying like my keyboard wrote this poem because my keyboard had 26 letters and i just combined them <laughs> right right exactly exactly uh i i mean but you know that that field is moving so fast that you know who knows how true that's going to be in a in a couple of years 
But I think there too, understanding linguistics can be really helpful because when you go back to this sort of socio side, what kinds of English or what kinds of language are available in these sorts of texts? So like GPT-3 is trained on like billions of words of stuff that's been written on the internet. Well, what exists on the internet, right? Like there's a whole lot of English text it's like if you train it on news sites, it's going to be a certain type of English text. It's not going to be a representation of how English is spoken, which is a lot more diverse than how it tends to get written down. Or mm -hmm. it's going to get trained on like, here's a bunch of Harry Potter fan fiction, which is written in a particular style. And it's hard to make those types of tools for any other language, really, at this point, even like the, the big languages, like French or Chinese or Spanish or something. But it's, it's hard because you need so much training data to get these kinds of results. Yeah. And we just don't have that much written text in really any other language or maybe in many other languages beyond like the top 10. So how do you do this? And like humans don't require this much input in order to start talking. They take quite a lot of input, but like by the time you're two or so, you, you know, you're, you're talking in sentences. How can you do this with like less input? Because yeah. that's where you could get something that might actually work for more languages. Well, God, I, again, I could talk to you for a thousand years. Um, and I, I'm loath to even ask you a closing question because we'll be here for another 45 minutes. <laughs> 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 what do you what, what do you hope people take away in terms of like their their daily their daily use of language? I think that a lot of people have this sort of fundamental linguistic insecurity of like um you know maybe I'm not doing it right like maybe I'm I'm just constantly saying things that are wrong you have that sort of red pen hangover and to just to be able to think through that in uh, a more reason sort of way you know if you're not doing a specific person harm if you're not actively insulting somebody or or being rude to somebody you're fine you're probably fine it's okay to wave at the end of your zoom calls it's okay to um, be creative with language and be expressive with language and be doing interesting things with language like you're probably fine it's okay Thank you. That's a wonderful message to end with. Thank you so much, Gretchen, for being on the show. Uh, Thank you the, for having me. The, the podcast again is called Lingthusiasm. The book is called Because Internet. Uh, you are called Gretchen McCulloch. Really uh, appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you again to Gretchen McCulloch for coming on the show. Her book, again, is Because Internet, and her podcast is Lingthusiasm. I hope you check them out. That is it for us this week on Factually. If you like the show, hey, send me an email and let me know what you thought about it. If you have any questions for me, feel free to shoot them to factually at adamconover.net. And please, please, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you subscribe. It really does help us out. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Roudman, our engineers, Brett Morris and Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song. I've been Adam Conover. You can find me at adamconover.net or at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media. And until next time, we'll see you next week on Factually. That was a headgum podcast.